there was something about that that still to this day just really excites me when we talk about cross app comments within podcast apps and things like that that show the power of two different systems being able to send messages back and forth. Something about that just really has always made me so happy. Podcast Junkies, episode 290. Welcome back. This is me, your host, Harry Duran, recovering from a conference flu that I picked up after returning home from Podcast Movement. And uh, needless to say, that did not go over too well <laughs> back home as I got my partner sick as well. But it was, uh, I guess I'd like to say it was worth it for me. Maybe not for her, but uh, I did appreciate connecting with a lot of my peeps I haven't seen in over two years. Just being back in the podcast mix of things, it was really nice. The days flew by. And shout out to all the people that I met, old friends, and some new folks as well. I had the ability to speak on the last day on that Saturday and closed it out strong, got some really good feedback. I talked about how I had success from a sponsorship perspective with my second podcast, the Vertical Farming Podcast, and that's gone over well. So if you haven't heard that, verticalfarmingpodcast.com. If you're new to this show, then this is the one where we just invite some of the most fascinating and fun people from the world of podcasting to get back, to get them to kick back their heels and just share what's on their mind and what's happening in the world of podcasting from their perspective. And I'm really excited about this week's guest. But before we get into that conversation, last episode, I spoke to my old friend, Jonathan Bailey Strong, host of Podcasting for Consultants and Leaders of Consulting. He shared his experience on all aspects of how he launched his show, how he became a podcaster, and how he's grown in the industry over the years. We first met at MapCon and just really respect all the work that Jonathan's doing for this space. Make sure you check that out, episode 289. So this week, Dave Jones. Dave Jones is a technology OG, I would say. He's also the co-host of Podcasting 2.0 and co-founder along with the Adam Curry of podcastindex.org, a service that empowers podcasters and developers to engage in content using the value for value model. So learn more at podcastindex.org. I can't even go into all the amazing things that Dave is doing there. We're going to touch on some of them in this conversation. So you want to jump into that. But Dave has got an extensive background in systems administration, building software. We talk about the origin stories of podcastindex.org, the role of currency of uh, cryptocurrency and the reason he and Adam designed it as a decentralized service. So really, really been a fan. Anyone who's been listening to these episodes, this show knows that I've been a huge proponent. If you haven't tested out one of the new apps at newpodcastapps.com, highly recommend you download one of those, load up a bit of money into your wallet. And we're talking dollars here. We're not talking a lot of money because uh, the currency exchange is in Satoshi's, which is a, a, a decimal of uh, a Bitcoin. So I think like at this point, if you send probably a thousand Satoshi's, it's, uh, you know, 50 cents or something like that. So it's really an important way to get this moving off the ground. And I really encourage you, I, I do it every single episode to check that out and just learn that some of the stuff that's happening and play around with those things. And if you have any questions, you know, hit me up on socials and happy to get into that. 
Okay, let's get into this conversation with Dave before I keep blabbing on. And before we do that, as always, remember that you can send me a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash podcast chunkies. And I'm always going to be reading those out in future episodes. Here's a couple of words from the folks that help me keep the light on, and I appreciate you supporting them as well. And after that, an uninterrupted interview with Dave. So Dave Jones, co-host of Podcasting 2.0, and am I right in saying co-founder of podcastindex.org? Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. Okay. <laughs> with... Uh, Adam Curry, thank you so much for making time and joining me on Podcast Junkies. Yeah, sure. Glad to be here. So Dave, just a big fan of what you guys have been doing. I've been, I've listened to every episode of Podcasting 2.0. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry you had to do that. <laughs> I think I just found it at the right time. And I know you've gotten some of the, the boostograms that I've sent over. So yeah. I don't know how much you know thank you. about me, but I, I started podcasting in 2014 I was in corporate for like 20 plus years. I worked at JP Morgan Chase in E-Trade in marketing. That's a terrible job. <laughs> yeah, looking back, it is. I can't imagine like being in a cube. I, I mean, when I think about how much time I've spent in a cubicle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is, this is way better. Yeah, this is way better. I wish I could make it all glamorous and say like, oh, yeah, I made the jump into entrepreneurialism, but I was doing con- a consulting job and the writing was on the wall that it was like some, they were going to hire someone else. And then I, I grew up listening to, I grew up DJing, so like vinyl and turntables, and <laughs> which is because the way that leads into podcasting is I created a mobile app with some friends of mine, like they designed, they coded it and I marketed it. It's called Know Your DJ. And it was kind of like a, like a Pandora, but just for electronic music. That's cool. And then in uh, 2014, I went to New Media Expo in Vegas and it was, this is how it dates it. It was podcasting, blogging, and YouTubes as the three tracks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anything that's, that even mentions the word blog now is immediately makes you old. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, I saw Pat Flynn was speaking there and another couple of other like podcasters that I had been following because I was just immersed myself in it. And then I shifted gears and I was like, what if I started a podcast to interview podcasters, sort of like uh, Inside the Actor Studio? You know, when they tell the, the story of an actor. Yeah. And what I loved about that show is you could learn a lot about an actor. You just saw them on screen. But when James Lipton would speak to them for an hour, I'd be like, oh, I get actually know them now. Like, And that's how it started. So 287 episodes, I think, so far, eight years. And uh, oh, fantastic. Good. So that's awesome. Love hearing that story. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's an amazing. I just wanted to tell the stories of podcasters, big and small. And just there's something that happens that's magical when you get an hour with a person and you learn how to be a better interviewer too. Cause it just, I didn't, I had to learn on the, on the fly. Cause in the beginning I was like, I had my, my list of questions and I was like, Oh, like what's your favorite ice cream? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Speed round. What's your spirit animal? Like all that, all the cheesy <laughs> stuff. <laughs> yeah. I'm not a great interviewer at this point We're, it helped. It really helps to do. I've feel like I've gotten my podcast podcast chops up very much quicker than most people would just because of Adam and just I mean, being around somebody who can just do, do it in their sleep. You know, I mean, he's been broadcasting TV and radio since he was, you know, a teenager literally. And so it's been a masterclass every week in how to properly run, you know, not just interview, but also how to prep edit straight, you know, sort of no post-production 
when we record the show, he's used to doing everything live. So when we record the show, we just go straight, straight through. I mean, we rarely ever stop. It's like, you know, Hey, are you ready? Yeah, let's go. Boom. <laughs> we do, you know, an hour and a half to two hours typically. And then, you know, he hits stop, trims up the front and the back and, you know, it's straight, it's out the door, it's edited and out the door in, you know, five to 10 minutes max. That's nuts. Yeah. So the, when you do it that way, there's a lot of pressure to, <laughs> to like not screw up, you know, and so like, yeah, yeah. you know, we, in the beginning, in the first few, you know, first three or four weeks, we, uh, he had to go back and clean up some, you know, some of my flubs, but then, you know, since then it was, it's been pretty, pretty smooth. So most folks listening will know Adam's background, but I'm just curious, like where you guys met. Uh, we met, it's been probably more than 10 years ago now. We met as I started listening to No Agenda show, Adam's uh, main show. And I heard that he was involved with a project with Dave Weiner, another project, not podcasting. Yeah. Another project with Dave Weiner uh, called The World Outline. And the world outline was based on it's a it was based on a piece of software called Frontier, which was an old blogging software for the Mac, and very neat kind of interesting software. You, today, these days, it would be cool. Like it was essentially a database and a scripting language and a web server all rolled into one thing. So it was sort of an object store, like an object ba- database where you could just store if anybody in your, I don't know if your audience, how technical they are, but if you like a sort of a set and a get system just sort of built within this object storage database. And so it was a really neat idea and I'd never seen it before because I was not a Mac guy and uh, knew Adam was using it for his show notes for the show and got involved in that project, which was open source. And then through that, me and Adam just naturally met because we were on the same message boards and stuff. And so then Adam, at some point, the software started, the software was always, always creaky. And so it was just really not a modern piece of a not modern code base. So it, people had been trying and then me and myself included been trying to sort of modernize it, uh, bring it up to date. And it was just, it was just kind of a mess. And so we, I started privately thinking about sort of cloning what the, world outliner software could do into a native Linux app that was built from scratch. And so I had started working on that in my spare time. And then Adam contacted me one day and said, Hey, I've got a cool, I've got an idea. Do you want to work on a, you want to work on something with me? And his idea was like a social and a social network based on RSS. Okay. So we, the idea would be that I could run a server and you could run a server and we could each have, you know, 10, 15, 20 people on our servers, our buddies, and then we, based on those connections between our two servers, we are all generating RSS feeds all the time based on, on the news that we read and repost. Then those two servers are federating very similar to like a Mastodon thing, but it's all based on RSS. And we mapped it all out, built a namespace, did all this work. And one of the things that came of it was that I had had this idea, I'd always had this idea that I wanted a system that would watch what I read on the internet and save copies of that, like a digital archiver, almost, almost like your own personal little archive.org. Sure. So that I could read f- articles in my newsfeed reader. It would save copies of them into a database where I could go back and search and find things because I'm forever saying, you know, hey, 
I'm talking to somebody. I'm like, oh, yeah, I read an article the other day and, uh, and oh, God, I can't remember where it was. I can't remember who wrote it or what, it, you know, I can't remember anything about it. And I would love at that moment to go pull it up and like give a quote. And so I was thinking, you know, as I read things, I want my software, it knows I'm reading it. I want it to go back. I want it to save those things so that I can go back and find them later. And so I built that into this product that I was building, uh, that feature. Was there a distinction in between something you had been saving, which you could do with something like a Feedly, as opposed to something that you have saved and then went back and then started reading, which would be the signal that it was, you were interested in it? Well, the way that the radio, excuse me, River 2, which was the product part that was the feed reading aspect of World Outline, the way that was built was on a river of news concept instead of like a inbox style RSS feed. Okay. So you got, you've got that inbox style that's like Google Reader or most of, most of the RSS feed readers, Net Newswire, are built that way. But then you have the river style where it's just sort of first in, first out. It's a stream of, of news coming in, news posts. That was the original concept that that Weiner and a bunch of others had for RSS was that you would not give yourself stress about having an inbox to read of news that, you know, we've already got email. We, that's stressful enough, you know, seeing your unread message count badge at the top <laughs> of your icon. Yeah. So you don't want your, your news reading experience to be stressful. Like it's a job. You want it to be something that's you pop in to the river, you see what's there and you pop out. If there is something really important, then it'll probably show back up again, you know, so you're not going to ultimately, you're not going to miss anything. And so we, had that that concept was built in so the the river style news well as you're as you're flipping through there and looking at these headlines if you click to read one it just pulls it in like an instapaper or readability type thing sucks you know extracts all the wording out and the paragraphs and everything and then just displays it right there in line when that process happens it stores it in the database so then you can at any moment you can go back and say into a different section of the app and say and and search for keywords or that kind of thing in your article archive. So your news reader and your article archive are sort of two different things. And but as you're reading, it's saving this article archive. And like one of the features was it's funny we're talking so much about this, <laughs> but one of the features was that uh, it had a I am reading RSS feed. So every time you saved an article and read something, yeah. it would put that into an RSS feed. So that if somebody else followed you, they saw every article that you read. Interesting. And that was kind of powerful because you can, you can sort of see how the discovery process would work there. As all of your friends, you're following their feeds and you're seeing everything they read and you may spot something or if two or three of them read the same thing, it sort of gives you a signal that that's cool. But there's that kind of thing. So Adam, he said, well, this is fantastic. I mean, I need this for my show notes for, for No Agenda because it's a new show. And so... This is 10 years? This is 2012? This was probably 2011 when we were... Okay. I was building the software. Um, yeah, probably around 2011. And then he said, uh, this is great. So I want to use this. And he's, so then we took that whole thing. We added this other feature to it, which was this editor... Where so now you could do, you could be reading news in the newsfeed reader, then saving the articles in the article archive, and then when it came to show day, now what you could do is go in there and select a batch of articles, export them out to an editor, 
within the app and then reorganize them, shuffle them around, reformat things the way you want and hit publish. And it would publish the show notes page for that episode of the podcast with all the links and the full text of all the articles. Cool. And he, he still does that. That's the system that still runs it today. If you go to like uh, archive.noagendanotes.com, every episode has the full, every article and every audio clip that they talk about on the show is listed there in full. So you can, what that's a, allowed to happen is that other systems have now been built that go out and index that stuff off of their site in order to build search engines so that you can go and say, hey, I want to remember when they talked about such and such, what episode was that? And it'll give you the exact episode where that article was talked about. Oh, wow. So all Adam would have to do from a workflow perspective is just bookmark stuff, read it. And as it's tracking that, then the system would know what he's actively engaging with and talking about on the show and tie it to that episode. Right. And because of link rot, and, you know, because links die on the internet all the time and, and articles go away and such, the one of the thing, critical things it did was it saves a copy of every article in Amazon S3 bucket. Okay. So that no matter if the original goes away for every article, there's also a archive link there where you can go get the saved copy just like archive.org type thing, which has come in handy so many times. But, you know, you'll have this really great article that, that talked about something really important and then it's gone. You know, and you have to go find it again in the archive. Uh, but anyway, that, that's how we met. Yeah. It seems like it would be a great tool for anyone who has a podcast that specifically pulls in like weekly recaps. I think about, you know, James with Pod News, you know, he's always researching stuff or people that do weekly recaps of what's happening in their industry and just, you know, that they have to kind of go through all these news feeds. It seems like it's something that would be helpful. <laughs> Here's where the caveats come in, because that this is what, you know, when I describe it, it sounds wonderful. Uh, the only the only problem is you have to have a PhD in in okay. some subject that I don't know what it is yet in order to install and run this thing. Oh, okay, but it never got to the point of hey, we need to polish this thing so to be a shippable product. So you you can actually run it and install it today, but it's a harrowing, not fun experience. So yeah, yeah not for the faint of heart. So we're going to get into the podcast index, podcasting 2.0 stuff, but I want to rewind the clock a little bit. Obviously, you're well-versed in all things tech. I'm curious, what was your first computer? Oh, first computer. First full PC was a uh, Commodore 64. Okay. Yeah. The, uh, we had not the one with the brown keys, but the second generation with the, with the gray keys, the the pointy one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I never got into the comment. I had, uh, for some reason, I got a Texas Instruments with an actual tape recorder and a cassette. Oh, tape. yeah. I had the tape deck for the Commodore. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I had the and tape deck. And then a Tandy One Thousand was an early one as well. Nice Radio Shack. But uh, yeah, you'd have to hit type the command and then hit play on the on the thing to, <laughs> to have it load in. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So I never got past basic <laughs> in terms of uh, programming languages. I think I started Pascal, and I was like, oh no, this is a little too much. But it was always just fascinating. Thankfully, my I mean, I'm, I was actually born in El Salvador, my father was too, but he came here for some reason when he was like in his 30s and he took a computer class, like it was in the back of the magazines he saw it. And he's just like, for some reason thought, hey, this is the future. So thankfully he got into computers. He got it. He worked at Exxon when they were doing electronic typewriters. Okay. <laughs> it was this behemoth called the Quix. It was like it weighed like a ton and it would be a one line digital display and you would type it. And then I remember did, that. Yeah. <laughs> I remember those. You'd hit, yeah. that, <laughs> you'd hit enter and it'd be like, 
it's the closest to a digital typewriter, but uh, yeah. And, that's... and you just hope that it didn't jam, you know, because <laughs> yeah. resetting is a pain in the butt. Yeah. 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 So it was just fascinating. Did you go to study computers, technology? Like where did the fascination with technology start? No, I never went to school for, for computers at all. Um, the I guess the first, my first fascination was the Commodore 64. And then it really kind of carried on from there. I had a 386 that that I had built from parts and got into that type of thing and then got kind of into programming with uh, D, uh, DBase. I don't know if you remember DBase or Fox Pro. Yeah. Those uh, sort of flat file database programming languages, which were always less exciting than you thought they were going to be. <laughs> um, <laughs> so then, you know, that natu- then I, I guess it was more, ir- I don't like that sort of programming where it's very uh, database constricted. Okay. And uh, I got after that sort of migrated over into assembly language and eventually got into networking. And so I really sort of got hardcore into computers as a full-time job as a network engineer. Okay. And that's really been the bread and butter ever since to put food on the table and programming projects of whatever stripe kind of always are in the background. Yeah, I remember the PC magazine days where you'd it would be a big deal when it was the jump from like the 386 to the 486 to the 586 yeah, yeah. to the Pentium. <laughs> and you'd be like, oh. Or this one has a math coprocessor, you know. <laughs> this can do floating point. <laughs> Nobody thinks about any of that stuff anymore. It just happens. I'm now Mac, and I made the jump years ago. But I remember I had the uh, the gateways. I had a couple of gateways, 2000. <laughs> and that was a big deal. The Dells were a big It was funny to watch Tiger Direct. Like all these like. Tiger Direct, the, yeah. The, yeah. The, <laughs> The wave of like all these uh, 86 clones, essentially, which is where I basically cut my teeth and just learned. Was it Computer Shopper that looked like it was like as big as a phone book? That thing was huge. Yeah. 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 And so, and then the networking was interesting because I dabbled in that stuff and like everyone else just got into like, you know, you, you would think AOL is like the internet and then you would discover like Netscape and Mozilla and you're like, oh no, like there's more to go and you go into that world. I actually, what was that IBM operating system? Not Opera, but OS2. OS, I think it was OS2. OS2, yeah. I actually yep. tried to install that on my machine at one point. <laughs> <laughs> that was a joint project. If I'm not mistaken, that was a joint project between Microsoft and IBM. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think IBM ended up owning it. and But I think Microsoft actually designed it or... I think so. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Engineered it, yeah. And so what was your take? Because like, obviously, when you get into computers and then you discover like the networking and the internet and the protocols and opening up that whole world... Do you remember, I mean, I know I'm winding the clock back a bit there, but what that experience was like? It's, you know, it's funny enough, I I kind of do, because I think, you know, programming is, people either get programming or they don't. Um, I think by the time you're probably, for most people, I mean, you you know, nothing's 100%, there's always exceptions, but I think as a general rule, people typically know if they love programming by the time they're about 20 at the most. And I don't know exactly how that works. There are plenty of people that do programming as a job just to get a paycheck. Yeah. But they, if you actually love it and really get it and it really grinds your gears, like that is probably something, you know, pretty early. And I remember knowing that I was just spending hours in basic trying to animate a, a pixel across this huge, you know, 320 by 200 screen. And so I, I knew that that was part of me. But then 
when it came to networking, when I went into network world, the first job I had was as a Novell netware administrator. Yeah. So uh, what I'd, I'd started working in an insurance company and I really wanted a computer job. And they said, well, no, you don't have any experience. And uh, I was probably 20 or 21. I don't remember. And they said, no, you don't have any experience. We need somebody that's got experience. And I said, okay, fine. They were like, but we have a job in the mailroom. I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> fine. I'll, I'll take. I, it pays more than I'm making now. So I'll take a job in the mailroom. And I made it my job at that point to do whatever it took to get into the computer department, you know, as fast as I could. And searching around, I saw that a lot of people, they ran Netware, Nobel Netware. And two of the guys in the computer department had a Netware, a uh, Novell engineer license or sort of certificate, I guess, yeah. SCNE. And so I said, well, I, that's what I'm going to do. And you had to take like seven tests and pass these seven tests. And then you got your Netware engineer certificate. And so I, I studied for that for about a year, took the tests, passed everything, and then went over there and said, you know, hey, I, I'm a network engineer. Now I have my certificate. Can I please be in the computer department? <laughs> and uh, they were like, uh, oh, yeah, when can you start? Well, you know, <laughs> you know, tomorrow is, yes, let's do it. That's great. But I remember as part of that process of reading and learning about networking, which I had never really been exposed to before then, I remember falling in love with the idea of two computers being able to communicate remotely. There was something about that that still to this day just really excites me when we talk about cross-app comments within podcast apps and things like that that show the power of two different systems being able to send messages back and forth. Something about that just really has always made me so happy. And when you marry that with programming and start to see how it works under the hood, that's even better. I mean, that's even more exciting. So I think that, you know, I would not call myself generally a technology oriented person. As a matter of fact, I hate technology. I hate it so much. It makes my life so frustrating <laughs> so many times. My daily driver vehicle is a 1965 Ford truck. I mean, that's how much I hate technology. That's funny. I don't, you know, I work, I work in computers all day long. The last thing I want is for my car to be, you know, trying to police my every action. I just want it to be stupid and do exactly what I tell it to. You know, when every time you try to connect a Bluetooth device to your stereo and it, <laughs> you know, and, it, and you spend 45 minutes trying to get it to work, you realize how bad we are at technology. Yeah. So I wouldn't call myself a tech enthusiast. And these, these are people like you and I that understand and know it. Yes. And when you think about like our loved ones, our family members, our our grandparents, like, or just, you know, <laughs> they don't have a chance. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's what I keep telling people about like self-driving cars. I'm like, you show me a car that can that can predictably connect to my Bluetooth headset every time I get in, and then I'll believe in self-driving cars. Until then, no. Exactly. No, pipe dream. But anyway, I, th I think while I'm not a technology, general technology enthusiast, there's something very specific about network communication and programming that is the driving force behind the things that I do. Yeah. Yeah, there's something magical to get these machines to talk to each other and behave in a way that's influenced by you problem solving. Because I remember those early days of programming, or even something as simple as like, not pivot tables, but like formulas in Excel. Like, for example, I would sit there and just be like, oh, if this, then that. And then you'd have to do like multiple parentheses <laughs> yeah. and commas and the commas missing. And I'm like, if I can figure this out, I'm going to save myself like 
30 minutes a day. And over the long term, I'd be like, you know, just save myself all this time. But you have to put the time in in the beginning to figure out that solution. Like, and it could take you hours or even days and you'd be up all night. And when you're younger, you have that energy to just like break night and just be like, got to figure this out. And there's something, you know, 12 <laughs> caffeinated drinks later and, you know, it's three o'clock yeah. in the morning. Yeah. I remember, it's funny because if, if there are any programmers in your audience, the first sort of the first real networking programming I did was in a similar language on Windows, which is kind of a weird beast in and of itself, but it's not as hard as it might sound. And the first time I interacted with the Windows socket system, which is pretty much a clone of what came from Unix, network sockets are the way that that applications talk to each other, either locally on the machine or across the network. And the socket system is very odd since it's kind of imported out of Unix world into Windows. And so I remember kind of having to wade myself through that and learn that the way that that operated. And it's a very low level thing. But the first time that you have a piece of software running on one computer and you're able to write a message and it appear on the other one through this socket tunnel that you've created, it's like, Oh my God, I've just saved the world. You know, <laughs> this is, I'm the greatest yeah. thing ever. You know, and it, it's, it's pretty magical to see all these layers of standardized software come together to produce this result. I think that kind of made me really love open source too, knowing that all of that stuff that I was using, this, the, the sockets and the low level POSIX stuff, I think that made me realize the power of free software and giving stuff away. For folks that don't understand or the intricacies of program assembly language, and correct me if I'm wrong, it, I mean, we're talking now the lowest level you're like operating almost at, like at the foundation of like where, because most people think about computers, obviously the highest is the software that someone created. And then you get down to like, you know, I, I did have some familiarity with the DOS command line. So just to be able to get in there and occasionally I'll, I'll get into the terminal <laughs> in Mac and try not to like destroy my computer, right. <laughs> but assembly language, I mean, and maybe you can define it better for me, but it, you're working with like the foundations and, and the plumbing, so to speak of these computers and, and networks. Is that somewhat accurate? Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's pretty accurate. We, you know, at, at the lowest level, a computer is made up of, of registers. So registers are just defined length sections of memory. So, you know, register in a 386 is going to be, or excuse me, like a 486 is going to be 32 bits. 32 bits is four bytes. So you have all these four byte registers, whether it's memory, main memory, or on the CPU itself. And they're all just addressable registers is what they're called. And it's all, it's, so it's very simple. Then you have groupings of those registers that are groupings of bytes. So you can have a one byte register, you can have, or you can address it in a one byte way. You can have two bytes, which is a word. You can have four bytes, which is a D word. Okay. And with modern 64 bit systems, you can have a Q, a quad word, which is, you know, 64 bits. That's really at the heart of what computing is. And these platforms do are registers. Then the instructions that cause things to happen are called opcodes. And these are defined actually physically on the chip itself. So when you're programming in assembly language, what you're doing is you're just doing sort of a gentle obfuscation of the opcode and register process. It's very, you're very close to the actual hardware. And so if you're moving, 
you know, memory from one location to another or a value in memory from one location to another. The difference between what the hardware is doing and what you're actually coding in assembly is there's almost no difference. So the C programming language is kind of one level of extraction above that, but it's still very kind of close. And within C, you can drop in and out of assembly language right within the code itself. So there's some of some of those sort of thinly veiled wrappers around assembly concepts were there in the early programming languages. But but yeah, assemb- assembly language is about as close to the hardware as any human wants to get. <laughs> is it a lost art? I mean, is, I, I almost think of it like uh, blacksmithing. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, like, like people not, are not having an interest in learning stuff like that. I think, yes, that's an interesting question. I haven't thought about that in a while. I mean, you know, I think that there's definitely still a need for it in some ways. So if you get into like graphics drivers and things like that, where performance is absolutely critical, you need every cycle to count, every compute cycle to count for as much as it can, can, then yes, you're going to need us. You're going to need people that know assembly and specific, not just assembly, but specific assembly architectures, like the way these GPUs are designed for. I remember reading, uh, I I think it's, I think it was just called assembly language programming on Linux. I remember reading this document and like the first page and a half of it, what of it was just reiterations of don't do this. <laughs> it was like, don't, please do not do this. I'm going to show you how to do it, yeah. but don't. What I really want you to do, the author was like, what I really want you to do is take this document and go throw it in the trash can because this is a terrible <laughs> idea. And his, his, his sort of reasoning was that's not, assembly language is not portable in the way that higher level languages are. And you don't, you're not going to get what you out of this, what you think it is. It's going to be breaking. You're going to constantly be frustrated. And he's right. I mean, for most programming that most normal human beings do, that is the case. And most people don't want to use assembly. I think I fell into it just because of the challenge of it. And I don't like spending a lot of time doing things at a high level without knowing what's going on underneath. Okay, And so I felt like I needed to, I was going to stay at the lowest level I could until I felt like I really understood what was happening. And, um, and I still think that's a good idea. You know? Is that an approach you take in life in general? Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, it, it absolutely is. Yeah. Yeah. We, my wife makes fun of me because I never ask for help for things. I always want to go and do it myself. Yeah. That's the, that's, well, it's, yeah, it's typical dude. Because I, I mean, I do that myself. I'm like, no, I, I don't want help. I got to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. She may have the actual solution as well. I'm just like, uh, it, the ego kicks in. <laughs> You're just like, I got I to gotta, gotta figure it out. You know, those old programming language books were cool, though, because they didn't assume that you knew anything. Yeah. Like, I have a great book on C programming that I've had for 25 years. And one of the best things about it is that it started from first principles. And it would just walk you through basic computing concepts of the hardware and build up through assembly language and then get into C programming. It assumed nothing about the reader. That's awesome. And it was great. And some of those old books are really, really valuable. You you read computer programming tutorials today and they start with, uh, you know, download JavaScript, download node package manager and, and run this. And it's like, well, what am I even doing? You know, yeah, you know, if you get lost in the first chapter that the book wasn't designed well or wasn't designed with you in mind, because you're just like, I feel like I missed, 
you go back and like, did I miss something? Because I just don't understand. For sure. Like, you're not even at, you're not even past chapter one. So this is interesting because it sort of like explains a lot about how your approach is to helping a lot of newbies now in the podcasting space. So we'll make a somewhat of a, a transition to that. I'm curious now with this background, having connected with Adam, pod, obviously you were listening to the podcast, you were familiar of the podcasting ecosystem. How did this idea for podcastindex.org, like when did you, you and Adam start having that conversation? Call me in some like early summer of 2020, I think. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right after sort of mid pandemic there. And so he, I think he called me in like June, yeah, June of 2020. And we started and he said, Hey, you know, I just listened to this episode of the Accidental Tech Podcast. In it, they were saying how there's this new Apple podcast, Apple News Daily. And they were talking about how that particular podcast in Apple's API is not returning the feed URL. So it shows up in Apple's podcast app. But that podcast, if you query it in Apple's API, does not return the podcast feed feed location, Okay, which was new. That had not really happened before. And what it meant was Apple is now potentially not returning the public location of feeds of podcasts in their own system. And this was a problem because if anybody knows anything about, about podcast app development you'll know that the problem with the biggest hurdle to to overcome with podcast apps and writing one is that you have to potentially monitor and request data from millions of feeds. So you have to be constantly tracking what is going on with all these millions of feeds constantly, and it's not an easy process. And so you can spend hundreds of dollars a month on hosting fees and server setups and code just to get up to speed where you can begin to track the changes in these podcast feeds. And so if because of that, most developers use Apple as a sort of crutch. They will you depend on Apple to give them the information. So Apple's running their aggregators constantly and people will just poll Apple to get their information about podcasts. It saves them money and time. Well, at this point in time, if Apple is no longer returning reliable results for whatever reason, corporate reasons, censorship, I mean, you can, who knows, come up with you know a, a few dozen. The fact is, it doesn't matter what the reason is. The fact is, it's happening. So if that's happening, that sort of makes you start to get concerned because if most of the ecosystem is relying on Apple to deliver accurate podcast information, if they decide not to one day, it's sort of game over if they're the only game in town. Yeah. And so he said, you know, hey, we we should do something about this. We have been working on this product for a long time. I don't want people, I don't want one humongous company to be in control of essentially what is the yellow pages of podcasting. And we can change this. We'll, we'll, why don't we just create a small, a small business, ask for donations, because like he's familiar with that. No, the No Agenda show has been run on donations for you know many years now. He's like, I, I know that people will support us to pay the bills each month. Let's do that and create a open index, a hope open directory of podcasts. But the most important thing is with an API and it's free and any podcast app developer can use our API to get 
podcast information, and that divorces the industry from this ultra reliance on on Apple. So that was that was the phone call that I got in the summer of 2020, and then I mean by what was your immediate reaction if you can remember <laughs> <laughs> my reaction to Adam. Uh, I don't even have to remember. I know my reaction to Adam is always, yeah, let's do it. Okay. Uh, that is, that is always, <laughs> I agree to it. And then is that trust? Is that just, you just know that if, if it showed up on his radar, it's something that he's given some thought to. I think the way I would describe it is he has a very good track record of being able to predict things, being able to look at trends that are happening in technology and say, and be a step ahead of where we need to be like in a, in a few years. Okay. And so I think he, his track record proves that when he may not be right about everything, but when he calls you and says, I have this feeling about this, or I have this idea, you better listen, you know, <laughs> you really better because it's, it's usually going to be true to some extent. So I usually just say, yeah. And then we start working on something between the two of us. We have probably 10 failed projects that we've worked <laughs> on over the years. So I was like, Hey, this is just another one, you know, let's just give it a shot. Sure. sure. Uh, but I think this one was different because it really was a need. It wasn't, it wasn't just, you know, some contrived thing. I mean, you could look out and say, okay, you know, this really is a problem. And it was kind of prescient because when Apple did their big, their big redesign, and this has probably been, you know, almost a year ago now. Yeah. When they did their big redesign, I guess it was maybe August or September of last year. It broke lots of stuff. And there was there were podcast apps that started using the podcast index API out of self-defense. You know, they were like uh, all of a sudden for there for about a month and a half to two months, Apple's API was very unreliable. So a lot of people started using the podcast index API. And if we had not existed, that would have been a real disaster. What's interesting is that most podcasters don't understand like how that works. They're just like, especially if as an agency, like we produce those for clients, they're just like, where's my show? I'm like, yeah. it, I'm like, it's in, it's Apple's fault. And they're like, well, you know, how come I can't see my show? Like, that's all they understand. Like my show is not available. And I just, I hit publish on my, my host, right? I put it up there and why isn't it showing? And I think understanding the dependency that we had as podcasters to Apple for the longest time is take some explaining to do. And, and at the end of the day, almost like programming, it's like, I could try to explain to you the benefits of like, why we, we've got this, we were submitting all your shows to like podcast index, but <laughs> at the end of the day, you just want to know that your show's up there. And then they just want to know that when they hit publish, that it's going to be up there and be up there quick. Yeah. And that, yeah, you know, you perfectly explain that because there's really, at the end of the day, most normies, so to speak, shouldn't have to know all that stuff. That's true. Yeah. But if you're a programmer and wanting to write a podcast app, you know, you have to know that stuff. And so we were like, we need to have a hand in creating an alternative so that podcast app developers don't have to spend so much time and hundreds of dollars to get up and running. Well, I mean, we've seen it. We've seen it a few times. So like there's a podcast app that uses us that for their first few months, they did not really have any database experience. And they were trying to run a huge database of millions of podcasts and they had a lot of, they had a lot of trouble with it. And those are the kinds of issues you run into when you're first starting out with a podcast app and the, sort of the underlying thing with this, the underlying uh, motivation here, in addition to just decentralizing the, the, the podcast ecosystem was also that 
we really wanted there to be much, a lot more apps. The podcast world is decentralized by nature. And what that means is that, you know, you can, I can be on Buzzsprout and then decide that I don't like Buzzsprout and move and go over to RSS.com, decide I don't like RSS.com, move and go over to Transistor, and I can, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and just go through that list. I can bounce my podcast around to 20 different hosting companies, and it will always show up in every podcast app. There's real, you know, that is an amount of sort of decentralization that doesn't exist very often on the internet. Websites are maybe the only except the only other version of that where you can sort of move your website from one hosting company from GoDaddy to Rackspace and still have and Squarespace and still have still have people be able to reach you. That's very rare and it's a precious thing that we don't want to lose about podcasting. In order to make that even even more of of a thing, in order to, to strengthen that even further, you need to have a lot of podcast apps to choose from, a lot of quality podcast apps. And when the barrier to entry to writing an app is so high, you're not going to have that. So if you can lower the barrier of entry down to where you just have a very simple, okay, plug in and here you go, then all of a sudden you see, and this is what we have seen over the past year and a half, you see this explosion of people that had great ideas about things that apps could do, podcast apps could do, but were being held back by just the overwhelming you know, amount of work that it took to do the back end before you ever even got to the app part. You have, you know, this barrage, this battery of servers that needed to run in order to provide the data to this thing that you may write six months from now. I think that really was an underlying motivation as well as to just make sure that the ecosystem is as robust and wide as possible. You need to talk about decentralizing and obviously lots of buzz around blockchain stuff and everything that's happening in that space. Cryptocurrencies, we'll get into that in a second. But from a design perspective, is the goal to eventually have it exist as a decentralized service? So, you know, let's say, God forbid, some you decide to not work on the project. Is it self-sustainable? Are you thinking about it, future-proofing it in a way as well so it, it can sort of live live on on its own and without, you know, some support, I would imagine, at some point necessary, but I'm wondering your thoughts there. Yeah, from the very beginning, we designed, just from the index itself, we designed it to be very simple. So the, it doesn't take a lot of effort to run it. So it's not a big time sink for me. A lot of the code we already had from our previous work. And so we were able to forklift that in there. And we also designed it to be as low cost as possible. And so these days we easily cover our monthly cost. Thanks to every, you know, thanks to all the donations we get. We, we have not had to pay out of pocket since we've paid out of pocket for about the first three months and we haven't had two cents, which is, so it's, awesome. it's been great. Yeah. I think our expenses are low enough to where we don't have to worry about about uh, self-sustainability. What we've been doing is trying to make sure that we have enough money in the bank to where we could run, and we're still tr working to that goal. We're trying to make sure we have enough money in the bank where we could run the index for minimum of five years without having, even if all the donations dried up. Okay. So we that's sort of like our milestone to get to. And at that point, then we'll begin to look at expanding to do some more things that may cost a little bit more. But until then, it's like, you know, Let's just cover the cover the basis, but decentralized part. We started very uh, like day one. As we said we're going to give the index away in total, so the full database. 
So right now you can go to podcastindex.org and on the front page you can scroll down and you can download our entire database right there on the homepage. It's big. I mean, zip, yeah, even zipped up, it's almost a gigabyte. So we're at 4 million plus, right? Oh yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's like 4.2 today. Okay. It goes up and down as we purge out junk feeds and that kind of thing. But yeah, we're rough, roughly 4.2. We kind of hover there, but you can download the full thing, see, our, see the whole data feed database. And if we were to, you know, blow up tomorrow, somebody could use that and just roll their own. And, you know, I'll say this too, you know, with all the stuff with, Russia and Ukraine and and all the political turmoil that's been going on. It's been an interesting thing to think. I was thinking about this the other day that you can still get this database into Russia or Ukraine, either one. You know, there's a lot of like the people talking about cutting off the Internet, these Internet providers cutting off access to certain, you know, to these countries, depending on which side of the defense they're on. And we started delivering our database over IPFS, which is a decentralized file. It's called the inter- interplanetary file system. And that was that for that specific reason to try to get around sort of these you know, great firewall of China and these, these kinds of things to sort of give people the opportunity to hopefully get this data. So if you had, if the Russian government decided to create some law, uh, well, they did the other day, you know, the Russian dif- disinformator fake news law or whatever. Sure. So if they did that and cut off a bunch of podcast apps all of a sudden from being able to communicate with the internet, as long as those apps had a copy of our database, they could still poll and still get podcasts internally on their own and still have a way to get information into the country. So I think this, people get distracted a lot by cancel culture and a lot of this t- kind of talk. But really, the resiliency that comes from decentralization and these technologies, a lot of it is the most valuable when you think about regimes like this that may be trying to cut off access to the free flow of information to their own citizens. Yeah. I mean, there's a, you know, that's a real concern in the world today. I mean, there, there's real, real free, free flow of information being cut off from despot regimes and this kind of thing. And so it's not just about hey, can Dave get his latest episode of uh, Podcast Junkies? You know, it's about can somebody who is living under a terrible regime somewhere in the world, can they get access to truthful news that they may not otherwise be able to get to? Have you had any contact or has anyone mentioned anything in the podcast space related to what's happening in Ukraine? Not really. We tend to be we we tend to be fairly apolitical and we kind of discourage that on on our Mastodon server and that kind of thing. We don't really want to it's just not not our jam, you know, to get into that. I mean, we all everybody has their own opinions, but we the people are pretty pretty good about keeping it about tech. I mean, you couldn't write better scripts in terms of what happened with Apple going down the whole brouhaha with Joe Rogan and trying to like, <laughs> yeah. you know, people like with Spotify and then now it's happening with Ukraine. And it's almost like writing the storyline for why it's important and necessary to have a service like Podcast Index just to accommodate and weather all these challenges. And at the end of the day, for people to have trust that, you know, if we're, freedom of speech, you know, for all intents and purposes is, is alive and well in podcasting. Yeah. And it's something that is a feature of podcasting. It always has been. Podcasting, like I said earlier, has always been decentralized. So what we wanted to do is make sure that that doesn't change, that it doesn't get locked behind a paywall like Spotify or Apple now with subscriptions 
or Amazon or whoever the next big player is that wants to, you know, that wants to capture the whole industry. We want to make sure that never changes. It's always decentralized and even take it one step further. So it's even more decentralized. And it's not about Joe Rogan. It's not about uh, or whoever, you know, the alternative, the opposite political of Joe Rogan would be. It's not about really any of that. It's about having a disinterested third party that only cares about making the information available in a decentralized way. That's what we try to do. And so then the apps themselves can make the decisions about content and what they want to allow. And one app may decide, you know, I don't want this class of content on our app. And another app may say, yeah, I want all of it. I want everything. And if you you want to let that be the choice of the app and the listener so that in a case where where it's truly a freedom issue, something like Ukraine, Russia, or China, or North Korea, or you know the list is long, where it, when it truly becomes an actual, let's say, human rights issue, yeah, then you can have full access to all that information, and then you can't stop it. I mean, you literally just can't stop the free flow in, into those areas. Very important. How surprised were you? Because one of the features of Podcast Index is the ecosystem that allows you to create boostergrams, which I've been dabbling into. I've sent a couple your way. This ability to have this direct connection with the podcast that you love, having that communication with the hosts, contributing to them in real time without an intermediary. Is that something that was top that you were thinking of as you were designing this? Or is this something that just came about because of the conversations you have? Because I I mean, I felt like I heard the genesis of it if you listen to the, the podcasts, you know, from the beginning. Right. But, um, you know, how surprised were you at, at, at people's adoption of it? Oh, now, at the speed of adoption, I was very surprised. I thought it would take a lot longer. But as far as when we first started thinking about that, that I think Adam thought about it early on. We thought about the decentralization need first. And then at some point he said, you know, this is not you can decentralize all you want. But if you don't decentralize the ability to get paid also, then that is still a problem. And there again, we have seen it very clearly this last few weeks with Russia and Ukraine, payment plat Visa and MasterCard deplatforming, you know, Russians. And whether you think that's right or not, what it means is that you can be deplatformed by these big companies that you don't have a say so in. And if some point in the future and this is the this is true with all political movements that they swing back and forth. Yeah. And today it may be your political opponent that is on the receiving end of cancellation or deplatforming. Ten years from now, it may be you. And so and that is absolutely a fact of life is that the political milieu swings back and forth a lot from generation to generation and sometimes even quicker. And so if you don't allow for resiliency with getting paid, then all the other stuff doesn't really help you much. And so he said, and so he was looking around doing a lot of research about what could potentially solve that problem. We knew it was probably going to be some sort of crypto thing, but then he found the Bitcoin lightning network and he called me one day and was like, this is it. Like, this is how we can do this. And uh, we had like a two hour conversation on my drive up to North Alabama uh, to go fishing. And so we, we just talked and hashed all this stuff out. It was like, yeah, here's, he's like, I think this will work. And and then we had this later discussion where it's like, no, none of this is going to work. This is all crap. And then, then we, he came back and said, oh, I found this other thing. And like, oh, that won't work. And so we hashed this thing out for months. 
and eventually kind of came to the the framework that we have now and we said okay yeah this as this is actually workable and put it in sort of wrote up a specification for it opened it up explained it to all the app developers and uh they just started they just really jumped on board and i mean before you knew it we had five apps that were doing lightning payments you know over podcasting it was really cool and it seems like uh, fountain has been really taking the lead oscar right yeah oscar mary he's a great guy yeah yeah, I've got him scheduled to to come on the show. Oh yeah, you'll like him a lot. Yeah, and I think what's interesting is it's still a little tech. You need a little tech, but I think when, even if you could translate it into pennies, and I think this is a challenge for the app developers to make it more user friendly. But once, as a regular podcast listener, you can see, oh, I thought I was giving like ten thousand sats, and that was significant. You realize it's only like fifty cents, or whatever, <laughs> yeah, right, whatever the yeah. conversion is. I think that as a podcast supporter you'll make that conscious decision. You know, if you can do that conversion on the fly, just be like, Hey, I'd, I'd rather give a dollar. And then, and, and I think you'll start to see the increases. And and I think what's been helpful is Adam is not shy about asking for it on your show. And that's why you have a whole segment at the end. Um, someone you, you should speak to is Jen Briney, but she runs congressional dish. She reads the bills. I don't know if you, uh, and she's been a longtime friend. And she, from day early, early on, she used to ask for donations and she would spend 15 minutes at the end of each show. And she's like, we got a check from Joe. We got a, a wire from this person. Well, that's all based on no agenda, yeah. you know, because she based that value for value system off hers off no agendas. Okay. Value for value system. It was very, you know, very much an influence, their friends. And uh, that I think you brought up a good point because when it comes to there's value for value, the technology, which is the lightning and the Bitcoin payments. And then there's value for value, the strategy. The concept, yeah. The concept, yes. Yeah, that's a better term. The concept. And the value for value concept is that you have to tell your audience that your pro- that what they listen to is valuable and you would like for them to give you value back. We sort of describe it as, or I sort of describe it as like a, a sit-down restaurant versus fast food. And, you know, you can run through the drive through and get a $5 meal, $5 burger, and, you know, you pay up front and you just get what you get. With a sit-down meal, they're going to do their best to give you everything they can because they know they're not getting fully paid until the end of that thing. And then then the the customer has has a, a full experience in which to judge the value that they got out of that meal. And that's really like what a podcast is. You You listen to, you spend an hour with this host each week or these hosts are two hours or three hours or more. And if the host doesn't tell the the listener at the end, you know, hey, if you got any value out of this, can you please return me some value either through money or support, you know, some information, whatever value you can return to me, can you give it back to me? If you don't take that extra step, then it doesn't really matter what your payment platform is or anything or how any of that works. You're not going to be successful. Because you can be on Patreon or, or you know, Bitcoin or whatever it is. Buy me a coffee. <laughs> yeah, buy me coffee. Now, so many podcasters make the mistake of signing up for those platforms and then never telling their audience about it because they're uncomfortable asking for money. So I would be remiss if at this point to anyone listening right now and who's gotten value from this hour-long amazing conversation that I've had with you, and I know we'll get some crossover from the folks in the podcasting podcast index community. If you're listening on a podcast specific app or a, a, a app that supports 
value for value, then you can send me a boostergram. And if I can figure out the technology to split this episode on the value block with Dave, I will do that <laughs> as well. <laughs> okay. But that's next, next level stuff. And that's just an example. You know, I'd be like, well, I, this is you're telling me what to do. And I'd be remiss if I didn't do it on this specific episode. <laughs> so thanks for that. Thanks for that reminder. Yeah. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, absolutely. You have to. Yeah, you really that's, that's really the key. Technology only gets you so far. You have to as as a relationship, you have to get the rest of the way there yourself. Yeah, very good point. What specifically about what you're building that you have in the works has you excited in terms of what, what you're you're rolling out or about to roll out? I'd say probably the most exciting thing right now, it's probably a tie between cross-app comments and uh, live. And so cross-app comments is the ability to have the podcaster control a comments system. And then those comments show up everywhere, all the same in, in all the different apps. We're getting really close to that. We've got successful tests going on constantly now. And I'm working on writing up the specification in, a, in hopefully what will be the final form just this week. I've been working on that. And then live is the sort of formalization of live podcasting into RSS so that all apps there you can you can go through there's a couple of apps that allow for like a live experience I think Podbean is one and but they're proprietary and you have to have their app and and well I mean of course YouTube and Twitch and those kinds of things but for all of these you have to have their app and so what we're in the final <laughs> I always unquote final stages of we've had successful tests right now is to be is putting a live specification into the RSS feed so that any app can tap into a live stream of a podcaster and read it just like they would a pod, a regular episode. Those are the two things that excite me the most because you can see the potential there. You can see that once you have cross-app live streaming and you combine it with cross-app comments Wow. And and lightning payments. Yeah. <laughs> then all of a sudden, you've what you've done is you've recreated YouTube super chat. Yeah. Or Twitch in a decentralized way that all apps can do. It's pretty cool. As a podcaster, what would you have to originate the stream in? Like, what what technology would you use to start the stream? The stream. The recommended way to do the live. It's called a live item, and so the recommended way to do that, as of right now, we finished that in phase four of the namespace tags, is to use an alternate enclosure, which is a new tag. You can use a regular enclosure, but it's limited to what regular enclosures expect, which would be like an MP3 stream, like an IceCast stream. And using an alternate enclosure allows you to open that up to way more stuff. So you could use HLS streams, you know, pretty much anything you can think of, a web torrent, lots of different technology. But if getting started is fairly easy, easy because you can just sort of drop a icecast server or a video uh, live stream into your enclosure tag and then most podcast apps would be able to read those right out of the box very cool and then the other thing that's interesting is that you you're working on an app for umbral and umbral is it's a piece together version of what you can have as your own bitcoin and node or lightning node is that an accurate statement or am I yeah. messing that up? <laughs> yeah, every lightning node is a full Bitcoin node. Okay. So an umbral an umbral is a Bitcoin node that has lightning capability 
baked into it and it's got a nice dashboard and yeah it's like a personal server yeah and it comes in a little like uh case the bitcoin machines yeah they have one yeah yeah, yeah. so that's what i'm looking to get and i think you've created an app so that uh, it's the hive app so that if as a podcaster i can see these boostergrams coming in i haven't played with it yet i haven't bought it yet but i, I the way i'm hearing you describe it so i think giving podcasters a front end to see this connection because i think it's a bit kludgy now because you got to download an excel file and you got to like <laughs> make your way through that the csv and stuff like that so i think that's going to take it one more step further to give podcasters that live dashboard to see you know these things as they're coming in yeah we're already doing it on our show but with uh, helipad is the app you're talking about yeah and that's uh yeah, like Adam runs that on his side, and whenever somebody sends a boostergram to us, it shows up in his dashboard, and he'll, he'll sometimes he'll read them out on the show live, you know, with the pew pew. Yeah, yeah, you get a little, <laughs> yeah, you get a little pew pew sound, you know. That goes, yeah, it's it really changes the experience. Like, yeah, totally. We're about, I think this week we're going to do our first live broadcast, and so oh, awesome! It really gives you know it, a lot of podcasters that I hear they don't really get a lot of feedback from their audience. Yeah, it's true. And as soon as you start getting feedback from your audience, it's like it's like it just energizes you. It gets you excited. I mean, it, it just it validates all the work you put in. You know people are listening. Finally, it's like, I know this person's <laughs> listening. You know, it's not just numbers on a dashboard. Yeah. It's an actual person. And it's not my mom, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Something Dave Jackson would do early on, he was definitely like, uh, he would take pictures of people that he knew were listeners and put them on his wall. And so when he would broadcast, he'd be staring at them and he's like, oh, Susie and, and Dave. And that's funny. So it's, it's that we always as podcasters, we're like, we feel like we're talking to a void because right now it's just me and you. But I'm always thinking ahead that like when this is published, there's someone listening. So I'm conscious of you, the listener, listening to this conversation that Dave and I are having. And then the fact that you can then interact with me, a little time shifting magic happening. But it, it's really fun when you see it. And I always ask for reviews. And in that same way, you know, I've got to get better about asking for value for value boostograms. But when they come in, I, I read the reviews at, I use a service called Rate This Podcast. I, I'm really adamant about asking it. I tell my clients, like, ask for it, not because it helps the ratings and, and, and the rankings, but because you want to know that someone's listening <laughs> and you want to know. And something to your point and to Adam's point, like you, you have to ask. If you don't ask, you won't get. Yeah, absolutely. Just last couple of questions as we wrap up. Thank you so much for being patient with your time. What's something you've changed your mind about recently? I think the reason I like that question is because I think that's something that I've always held very dearly. Well, let me take that back. Not always. I've I learned to take that dearly. I think the power to change our mind is one of the things that makes us human. It's probably It may be one of the most defining characteristics of being human is the ability to change your mind about something. And if you don't, I feel like you're not living up to full human potential. I guess one thing that I've changed my mind on lately is just is the whole freedom of speech thing. I've been a libertarian-minded person for many, many years. And I think that a lot of libertarians get bogged down into perfection. And one thing I learned from Ron Paul, big Ron Paul supporter, and when he, one thing he said when he was on the, uh, the Daily Show with Jon Stewart, a while back, you know, John Stewart asked him, he said, so yeah, you know, you know, you're a libertarian guy, you're an in the Fed uh, economist, you know, and he said, clearly what you would do if you got won the presidency, this was back when Ron Paul was running for president. He said, clearly what you would do if you, you know, won the presidency is you would get rid of Social Security and get rid of Medicare and, you know, all these things. And uh, Ron Paul said, uh, of course not. No, no, of course I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. And he said, ideologically, I don't think those programs 
are economically sound, and I don't think that they maximize human freedom. But if I was to just get rid of those things overnight, millions of people would be harmed. And he said, and that is a bigger problem than my own ideology. My ideology does not trump somebody else's harm. And I think that stuck with me for a long time. And we think in terms of of absolutes way too much. And I'm willing to I'm willing to sacrifice parts of my ideology for the good of other people more than I ever have been probably. Because if you don't if you aren't that way, let me put it this way, you can never win somebody over to your way of thinking if your way of thinking is actively harming them at that moment. That's a good point. And so I think when it comes to things like freedom of speech, when we first started the podcast index and that kind of thing, we were very hardcore about, you know, zeroist, you know, we're not going to censor and we still won't do any of those things, but we have stopped making that one of our core principles that we advocate and, and market actively in public because unfortunately the terms freedom of speech and those kind of things have become so toxic that just mentioning those phrases, it makes it where people I can't, they can't hear you and they don't, it's not a constructive conversation to have anymore. So I think, you know, what I've changed my mind on is the need to be a hardliner on a lot of the way that you talk to people about these issues and be more soft about having discussions and conversations rather than just advocacy of an idea of an ideology. Yeah, I think in this day and age, I think having the ability to listen to someone that you may vehemently disagree with, but just understanding what was the circumstances mindset that caused them to have that opinion and not seeing it as something that's either right or wrong, but just like empathizing with them as a human being and saying, I could see why you would think like that. Yes. And I think the exact opposite, but, you know, not, you know, vilifying folks, you know, just for having an opinion or a viewpoint that's, you know, it could be the opposite of what you yours is. Yeah, I think if you say, I think we should always sort of start off <laughs> our comments about things, especially on thorny issues with, you know, I could be wrong. Yeah. But here's what I believe. Because the fact is, you could be wrong. And if you don't realize that, then that's an issue. That's a problem. And and I like what you said. I mean, these things need to be conversations and not browbeating over people over the head with ideology because, oh my God, we've had way too much of that. <laughs> most definitely. What's uh, the most misunderstood thing about you? <laughs> There's nothing misunderstood about me. I'm, I'm <laughs> an open book. No. I think it's probably what we talked about earlier is probably the uh, the technology stuff because I, I love the technology of podcasting and programming and all of the ways that open source work, but I hate technology in as an <laughs> as a societal harm. You know, I love beautiful, uh, freedom enhancing technology, personally empowering technology, but I despise the sort of consumerist technology that that gets shoved down our throats every day. If I could. If Instagram and these things never existed, the world, you know, I would not, I would not shed a tear. It's just, yeah, yeah, it's a shame. And also, like, here's a sort of a more dumb example: is we sat down, me and my son sat down to play a video game the other night, and 
he's busy. He's 18 years old. He's busy. I'm busy. And uh, we just sat down to play uh, Halo, the new Halo game the other night. And so we boot up the Xbox. It hasn't been on, turned on for a few weeks. And we booted up. We were going to play. We had probably an hour and a half to play. And, you know, of course, it starts doing this update and it starts downloading this multi-gigabyte update. And this thing takes 45 minutes and then it reboots and then it has to do another one. And all. And by the time it was an hour into this thing and we were we, it was completely botched and we, we didn't we weren't able to play. And I remember back when I was a kid with a you know, Nintendo or some Atari Atari. Yeah. <laughs> and you plug the thing in and you turned it on and it worked. You got to blow in it first. To get <laughs> you got to blow in it. Yeah. That's right. You, you turn it on. It works every single time and it's instant. Yeah. And it is a perfect example of how the, the progression of technology is not really progress. In a lot of ways with that progress also brings a drawback. And so for every, for every benefit, there's been a resultant negative. And I think that we're in a catch 22 really as a society at this point where we are, we are having to actively give up things in order to sacrifice things on the altar of technological advancement. And I don't think that it's a net positive. I agree. And I can't think of a a better way to put a a ribbon (laughs) on this conversation. Been a bit wide ranging, but very eye-opening. I'm grateful for the opportunity to connect with you, hear your backstory, because I, I would get pieces of it through the podcast. But I think I'm a child of the 80s. I was, I'm 51. I was born in 1970. So it's just interesting to see what's been happening like since the days of like Pong. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Now it's amazing. We live in a, in a really wonderful time. And, and there's ups and downs with that and benefits and drawbacks. But I think overall, it's a, I feel like it's a great time to be alive. Yeah, for sure. Experience what we're experiencing. So I appreciate you coming on, sharing the story, getting people excited. We'll definitely have all the links mentioned in the show notes as well. So is there any other places you want to send folks or have them connect with you? You know, anybody that needs something in the index, if they have a podcast to submit to us, they can always email it to me or you can add it yourself on the on the site. There's an ad page there. So if your podcast is not in the index, you can you can add it. And I'll be glad to do it too. Or if you're a developer, go to our podcastindex.social Mastodon server. That's where we discuss all of this stuff constantly, every day, constant discussions going on. And there's a great group of programmers there that are really interested in this stuff. And uh, that's where all the magic happens. So if anybody wants to participate, I would love it. They just go join up. Dave, thanks for everything you're doing on behalf of uh, all podcasters. (laughs) I I really want to just... I say that I appreciate the work that you and, and uh, Adam are doing for the independent podcasters. Hopefully we get to connect at some point in, in uh, real time. We're going, I'm heading over to podcast movement evolutions. You guys plan any, either one of you plan to attend or my day job is not going to let me go there, but <laughs> okay. I will be at the one in Dallas. Yeah, I'll be there as well. So I'll make sure we connect. Yeah, absolutely. Love to meet you. All the more reason to put the word out to get more boostergrams so you can leave your day job and and work on this. (laughs) 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 Thanks again for your time, Dave. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I had a great time. Thanks. Thanks again to Dave for coming on the show. Really was chasing him down. And ever since I've been listening to the podcast, Podcasting 2.0, I just knew I needed to have him on. And as you might imagine, because of the length of this episode, there was so much we could have talked about. And uh, yeah, he's just a wealth of information and really inspiring to see what they're putting together at podcastindex.org. 
Intro and outro music composed by Cedar and Soil. Don't forget, you can leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash podcast junkies, and I will be more than happy to read those out on future episodes. Don't forget to check out our sponsor, Focusrite, their awesome line of gear. I'm going to get my hands on some new stuff coming out. I can't say too much about it. Shout out to Daniel, who I was happy to connect with at Podcast Movement Evolutions. And uh, yeah, more to come there. But check out their full lineup at podcastjunkies.com forward slash focus rate. Tune in next week for my conversation with Brendan Mulligan. He is a many times over entrepreneur, if that's the correct phrase. And he's the current founder of PodPage, a really fantastic service for creating an all-in-one podcast website for your show. We had a great conversation and uh, saw him speak at Podcast Movement Evolutions. Make sure you check that out. If you've made it this far, no doubt you're looking for this week's retention hashtag. Let's go with hashtag pewpew, P-E-W-P-E-W. Anyone who's a fan of Podcast Index, uh, Podcasting 2.0, knows exactly what that is in reference to. So make sure you tag us at podcast underscore junkies on Twitter and Dave at podcastindex.org, hashtag pew pew, P-E-W, P-E-W. Just going to have some fun with this one. Thanks for all you do to support the show. Talk to you next week.